Well, in Lent, we'll be practicing a little more silence than we normally do. We always have some pauses uh, here in our worship at Holy Trinity. We don't do it to be different or something. We, we do it to teach ourselves to learn to be alert to God and to others. And so since we're just beginning Lent and we'll be doing this um, for the next few weeks, I want you to look at the marginal note on page three on Lent and silence and looking up and seeing my friend Todd here. It reminds me of the day many years ago that Todd and Beth and I sat around Beth's kitchen table and wrote these marginal notes. And uh, it was Todd, I believe, who had the ingenious idea to not make them instructional, to not make them historical, but to make them invitational, invitations to practices of formation. And so in these next six weeks, as we have these silences, I would just commend to you these notions that silence is alive. And they are invitations to pause and rest in God's presence, to listen for his voice, and to not worry if nothing big happens. But as you're silent, learn to listen and ask the Holy Spirit, especially regarding the readings, what truths or commands or encouragements or invitations are for me today, and how should I respond? So if over Lent you get a little stuck in silences or if silences aren't normal to you, if they maybe even scare you a little bit, You've always got those marginal notes there to, to hold you and, and to guide you along the way. All right, so using our Lenten readings this morning, let's do some reflection on the practice of Lent. And I want to begin by saying that I think the most effective spiritual practices, including Lent, have a clear and simple focus. Uh, just That's hugely important. As you think of the next 40 days or so, it's, I think, very important that you find a spirit-led, personal simple, clear focus. Um, that's not easy for me. I remember many years ago when I was doing my doctoral work and you know, had to take one of those courses you take in doctoral work on research, I remember the professor saying over and over again, focus, you know, control the scope of inquiry, right? Any of you have ever done this kind of work, you know what I'm talking about. You know, control the data, you know, narrow, 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 focus, 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 what's your contribution, right? Just over and over and over again hearing this. I'm working on a new book right now for InterVarsity, and a draft just came back to me with the editor saying, hey, I think you're trying to do too much in some of these parts, because the way my brain works, I think of an idea, and then I think of seven arguments someone might have with that idea, or six connections to history or the Bible, and my, you know, my brain can just go everywhere. Well, what about culture, and well, what about, you know, and so, you know, I just, for me, it's just, I don't know about you, but for me, the reminder of find a simple, clear focus is so important. I would say that I think actually restraint and simplicity are deeply spiritual ideas. There's not a lot in our world today, interior to us or exterior, that makes restraint intuitive. Actually, the opposite of what's intuitive. Expand, more, greater, the fear of missing out, Right? That's what's in most all of our head spaces these days. And I think it makes, as I said, restraint and simplicity deeply spiritual. So learning to ignore more and forget more and to focus on what is important is crucial. And so slowing down in Lent, stopping our busy mind so that we can just consider one thing, to really decide how the Spirit's leading us this Lent, 2018, and then just kind of let go of the rest. Now, again, I have to stand here and say, anybody in this crowd knows me could just sort of yell out right now, physician, heal thyself. 
um, because I have to work on this. This is not intuitive to me. I have to work very hard at um, narrowing focus. And then secondly, I would say, I would commend to you a Lent that's childlike. And in a sense, begins with a beginner's mind or enters into Lent with a beginner's mind. It was probably a decade or so ago. I think this book was published in 2007. It was a book on how to do PowerPoint well, and it was called Presentation Zen. I don't know if any of you saw it. It's not a book on Zen. The, the Zen part there just means, you know, create PowerPoints that has significant negative space in it, right? Don't fill PowerPoints with words, especially, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I was just, I was thinking about that this week as I was preparing for this. And the point of the book as it starts is, is that those who approach life with a beginner's mind have a, that kind of childlike freshness and enthusiastic to it because a beginner's open and receptive and more inclined to say things like, why not? Let's give it a shot. I wonder if this can be done. And I just think that's a very cool way to approach spiritual disciplines, to approach them with a the beginner's mind, to not be afraid of being wrong. The, the fear of making a mistake, the fear of risking an error or of being told you're wrong is constantly with us. But I think the way spiritual formation in Christ works, that if we're not willing to make some mistakes, then it's impossible to be truly creative and open. Like if the state of our mind is constantly coming from a place of fear and risk avoidance, then I think we're going to be pretty much stuck where we are settling for safe solutions. But what if God really is a good, good father, as we were just singing? So good that in a kind of childlike way, you could explore the darkest parts of your heart your sort of gravest tendencies to sin, the thoughts that you'd never want a soul to ever know cross your mind, right? Like, how can you go there if, you know, we're kind of fundamentally fear-based or our minds are filled with all kinds of things, but if we can begin to still those things, and I'm not saying you, like, have to go to the darkest place, but you, we're just not likely to go to any significant place if we have this mind that is fearful and that avoids risk and just seeks always for safe solutions. But I think true heart work, work done in Lent, calls for this kind of childlike passion, a kind of openness, or to, to, to put it in business sense, I think Lent requires the feel of an R&D department, right? Research and development, not accounting, as good as accounting is, and not manufacturing, as important as manufacturing is. But what if we thought of Lent and this work of spiritual formation as more like the R&D department? Playful, stickies all over the place, ideas all, all over the place, in that sense of just sort of a, a playful way of seeing what's real about us and then focusing on the one thing that we might hear the Spirit saying to us. Well, the reason that Genesis 9 is a traditional Lent reading is that it reminds us that at this point in the Genesis story, everything is bent against God's purposes. And the plot line has become so amiss that God realizes that his dream, to put it in that term, is in danger, and that there are irreconcilable forces at work, meaning God's desire for his creation on the one hand versus the violent, destructive, and obstinate humanity on the other, rejecting God and his purposes in order to have their own way. And so the story leads us to see that the creator God was now going to have to reveal himself as a saving and redeeming God. There is actually, I think, mentally, intuitively, a very big difference between the word creator God and what we just sang, you're a good, good father. They're equally true, 
But wouldn't you agree with me that they're very different things? Creator God's very abstract. Creator God allows us to see transcendence, appropriate transcendence. But a good, good father, that allows us to see imminence, proximity, closeness, nearness, relationship to his people as they are, right? So even at the very first sin, the first word from this good, good father is, Adam, where are you? I love talking about this in particularly reformed crowds because they, they laugh harder at this. Because reformed crowds, you know, they're very much in, in tune with um, things like foreknowledge and omniscience and that sort of thing. So do you really picture God up in heaven, whatever that might be, or even walking in the garden and wondering, where's Adam? Gone it. I swear I just had him here somewhere. Right? Do you really picture God sort of like, honey, did you see where I put my kids? Like, honey, where's my cell phone, right? Really, you really picture the omniscient God lacking a data point where his created son is? No, it's something more like, it's, a, it's more of a relational question. It's, a, it's a, almost a rhetorical question that would say something like, Adam, can you see where you are? Can you see what's happened here? Can you see the fracturing? And by the time we get to Genesis 9, this has now just kind of gone all over the place. And so the creator God is now re revealing himself, as I said, to be a saving, redeeming God. And so with things going wrongly, as bad as they are, God had to make a decisive intervention. And the intervention he makes is a revolution, you might say, in his own heart. We can talk about God in that way. That he himself says, I'm going to put my war bow away. Now, it's almost unanimous. I've certainly not read anything different. It was unanimous in my reading, that virtually all the commentators and scholars on Genesis see this as an allusion to a war bow, a bow in which you would create war. And that God hangs it in the heavens and says, I'm done with that. Sort of the warfare between us, the rightful sentence of a flood, we're now past that. And we're beginning again with humanity. And the enmity between us is now not on me, I'm giving it up, and it's all grace, and I'm making a covenant with you. And again, careful readers of scripture, and especially Jewish people, would have immediately seen in this covenant that it's completely one-sided. Noah doesn't say a word. It's all of God, it's all of grace, it's all of mercy, it's all of kindness, it's all of covenant fidelity, it's all God saying, I will stick with you and whatever this creation to Genesis 9 phase has been, it's not going to be like this anymore. And so the rainbow that we see in the sky is meant to signify that God is a completely reliable covenant partner and that he's completely devoted to humanity. And that in the end, it's not the flood that dominates. In the end, what dominates this picture is a grieving God seeking reconciliation and a new beginning. And that is the context in which we do Lent. Like what if this isn't merely the creator God ticked off at you for the places upon which you've marred his creation in yourself or in your community or family? What if, what if it isn't just that? What if what's going on in Lent is a grieving God seeking reconciliation with you, seeking to reconcile the broken bits of us and to create in us a new beginning? In the same way that God wasn't willing to abandon his good creation, 
What if in Lent the same is true, that in Lent as you draw near to him, that he's intensifying his efforts towards you? And he's doing it by having effected in himself a change to sort of drop the creator, you're messing up my creation tension and to approach it from a whole different point of view. And I would say that that, that is true and it becomes most obviously true and reaches its climax in the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, I would say that in large part, this is what's gone wrong with religion all over the place, in the church, outside the church, everywhere, is we have this notion that we know what God is. And so when we see the word capital G-O-D, we then place into that what we intuitively believe to be true or unknowable. But the scriptures work the other way around. The scriptures say, if you want to know what G-O-D God is like, well, you look at his son. And his son is the one who pours meaning into those three letters, G-O-D. Are you tracking with me here? It, who God is that we see the first little symbols of in Adam, where are you? And the war bow, you know, flung out away. The reminder that I'm no longer fighting with you. This isn't a fight between creator and creation. This is now something different. That, that the trajectory of that story finds its climax, Jesus on the cross. And that shows you what God means. And then that shows you how you can interact with God, not just in Lent, but always. And so creation, and I would say us, we, are not abandoned to our sinful disorder. The chaos and the chaos before the flood and the chaos of the flood is never the last word. And so we see in this story something I think very important about God and our relationship to him is that in this Genesis story, God yields no ground regarding his purposes. In that sense, he doesn't stop being creator and shepherd of his creation. He doesn't yield any ground, but he finds another way to pull humanity along. Are you feeling me here? He yields no ground. He doesn't say, oh, forget it. Humanity just sort of be whatever you want, my divine eternal purposes don't matter. No, he yields no ground there. He just says the way this is going isn't working and he finds a new way to pull us into his purposes and then gives us this sign of the rainbow that he'll always remember this covenant, this kind of, again, I'm speaking kind of metaphorically, this new way of him being with us. So then when we get to our gospel reading, which again is the classic gospel reading for the first week of Lent, on one level, Jesus is symbolically living out the story of the purposes of God that had gone wrong in humans and in Israel. So when he comes out, if you look at your passage, when he comes out of the water of baptism, we're just alerted to here that, that Jesus was baptized. And I, I like the way one commentator put it, that Jesus is not baptized for sins, but baptized more in sort of the classical sense of a turning point as the sign of the end of his former life the giving up of his assumptions and worldviews and entanglements and obligations. For Jesus, his baptism is more of a sign that he's no longer subordinate to the temple, for instance. In fact, one of the things that drives the religious leaders of his day crazy is that without saying it straight out, in a sense, Jesus claims to in his body, in his person, to embody what the temple was supposed to be. Scandalous. I mean, I can hardly think of anything more scandalous. Right? Remember when they cut the roof in the hole of somebody's house, roof of their house, and they let this guy down before him, and Jesus forgives him of his sin and heals him? Do you remember what the religious leaders go crazy about? 
you can't forgive his sins. Why? Because you're not God and this is not the temple. Sins are forgiven in the temple through sacrifice, not through a supposed rabbi, not even through a supposed prophet. So in many ways, Jesus is interpreting in himself and in the story of his temptation, he's sort of reinterpreting in himself what God intended for humanity, that they would indeed be freed from Herod and freed from Caesar and freed from modern political pullings of whatever kind or powers of various sorts, whether they're economic or political or civic or social or whatever, that in our own baptism, we would come out the other side 100% focused on God and his purposes, as Jesus did. And then, of course, here's these very famous words, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And I just want to say to you again, <laughs> wish I had some sort of metaphysical powers here or something, because I would just sort of lay over you this sense that as you go through Lent, and whether you discover something that seems minimal and almost playful, or whether the Spirit leads you to some darker place in yourself to deal with, can you just know it, that you are his daughter, and with you he is well-pleased? And you are his son, and with you he is well-pleased. And that's the umbrella under which you face the harsh sun or the pounding rain of Lent. It's the only way it works. It's the only way it's spiritually productive. And it is the absolute truth of the matter that with you, he is well-pleased. Well, now Jesus begins to proclaim what's going on in himself and his emergence in Galilee. And in a sense, Jesus's proclamation, again, is tied to this long story of humanity. You know, from Adam and Eve to the flood, to the calling of Abraham, through patriarchs and judges and prophets and kings and up to John the Baptist, that whole big long story, Jesus is interpreting. And he says of it, first of all, if you look at your passage, that it's the good news of God, which is to say that this good news that's being talked about, normally this word in a more civic setting outside of like in just sort of Koine Greek outside of the New Testament this word for good news would mean something like, like what we would say on a Tuesday after an election, hey, so-and-so just got elected senator, right? So there was this good news that so-and-so just got elected senator and maybe that senator showing up to our city. So it's something like that. And what Jesus is saying is that this good news is all about God who is now entering, and again, I mean that word sort of analogously, he's now entering human life through Jesus and showing himself, again, sort of analogously, to be a new king. And so then Jesus's next phrase is, look at it, the time has come. Well, what can that mean? It means that Jesus is placing this moment in history in the long story of God, and that all the moments of promise and sinfulness and fulfillment, including Noah and the flood, Creation, election, rescue from exile, the patriarchs who blew it, the bad and good judges, the bad and good kings, the right and wrong prophets, all that ups and downs of human history, all the way to John the Baptist, who Jesus says is the greatest person ever born of a woman. There's now this pregnant time in history in which the kingdom of God, that is to say the ruling and reigning of God, the expressed will of God is now coming near to humanity. So it's something like this, you might say. The, the biblical words for heaven and earth can be difficult, but it's sometimes easy to think about them as spheres and, and overlapping spheres so that heaven 
probably not best conceived of as something way off out there beyond the stars somewhere, you know, in the maybe even beyond the Milky Way, right? So not way out, out there somewhere, but simply God's sphere and that there is sort of a human sphere. And that what's happening in Jesus is you have these moments where the veil between the two is being pulled back, sort of like something behind this image. You let down the image and what has always been there is now seen. So in healings, in the casting out of demons, in the stilling of storms, in the healing of lepers, the realm of humanity has its sort of film pulled back and we see the kingdom of God, the ruling and reigning of God, and that it is now actually near us. It's breaking in, in the person of Jesus. And that as you become a follower of Jesus, you can access this otherwise sort of hidden reality and find your life in it. But Jesus says to do this, we have to do two things. We have to repent and believe. So if you think of repentance here, again, in the, in the sense of this Genesis story we read this morning, it gets at the deep places of self-interest, I think, in the human heart. That conflict that we see in Genesis, where the human heart has been out of line with God's purposes for millennia, as I've said, through the whole story. And so Lent just gives us a time to pause and ask ourselves, can we see ourself in this story? Like, is this a story about me too? Or is it really only about Abraham lying about Sarah? Or only about David sinning with Bathsheba? Or only about modern Pharisees and Sadducees, contemporaries of Jesus? Is it really only about them being mixed up about religion? Or, can, or does this whole big story include me? Can I see myself in this story? Can I come to accept that I am created with God purpose and that I am finite? Ashes to ashes. Can I come to see that in my current bodily form, I am finite? And can that produce in me a kind of humility in which I see myself in all the ashes to ashes of living beings who are now literally dust on the one hand and yet the communion of saints on the other? Can I see myself in that story? Can that begin to give my modern contemporary 2018 life a sense of what it is and what it's all about? Can I find some personal candor in an otherwise flood of deception? Can I get to the place where I stop grasping for control and thus using the various forms of violence that comes with it? To repent is, a, is an invitation to think about your thinking, to review your worldview, your political and civic agendas, your personal plans for life based on this surprising good news that the kingdom of God is present in Jesus and now for us through the spirit as well. And then Jesus asks his first hearers, and you have to picture a bunch of, if not confused Jews, Jews that had very strong political, religious, and civic views of things. Jesus is saying something completely different, and he says, so you're not only going to have to rethink your thinking, but you're going to have to come to the place where you trust that what God is doing in me, I get that it's something new, I get that people don't get it, but you're going to have to come to trust that what God is doing in and through me is what's real. You know, the Jews who would have heard Jesus would have been very connected to their story, very connected to the promised land, very connected to their symbols, very connected to what we think of as the sacrificial system, very, um, very, very committed to their scriptures. 
But what Jesus is saying to them is, can you see that that's a starting point for what God is doing now? And in the same way, there was a major transitional moment when God hung his war bow in the sky and made eternal peace. This is something like that. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to live into this, you're gonna have to rethink everything. And so in a sense, Noah is an early model for what Jesus is probably hoping for here, is that in the same way out of the flood came the emergence of a new humanity in the midst of judgment. Jesus is seeing, and I think we need to see in 2018, that faithfulness is possible even in a world where most things are going wrong. Now, I I cannot be the only one in this room who is increasingly discouraged, almost to the point of I can't read news feeds anymore. They're just too depressing. I mean, what, what am I supposed to be most brokenhearted about? Syria? The way men have historically treated women? Like that's heartbreaking enough for a decade. I could just sit with that for a decade and feel broken to bits. Or I read of a seven-year-old girl raped by somebody, I think in India. Well, I mean, like how many times can your heart break? How out of control can the world get? And Genesis 9 in this passage says to us that even in chaos, faithfulness is possible. A Noah is possible. You're possible. I'm possible. It's possible to engage in these dopey little practices of giving up chocolate or something to make space for God in our life so that out of us, he can shape a more holy person a more grounded, structured by God's story sort of person who can live into this crazy world where virtually everything seems to be going wrong. So final thought, that God's creation and God's recreation, whether we see it in Genesis or in Jesus, is never coercive, it's never authoritarian. Man, put that in a comment section somewhere. I wish that could go viral. As I'm convinced, especially among millennials, that the biggest hangup, one of the biggest hangups is that religion's just a power trip. It's just the church trying to enforce its opinion on everybody else or whatever. But what if in true religion, there's actually nothing coercive, nothing authoritarian? What if it's invitational? Come, follow me. Now you can do what you want, but this cosmic invitation stands before humanity. Come, follow me. Rich young ruler says, hey, Lord, what do I have to do? Jesus answers him. He says, "Mm, I'm not sure I can go there. What's Jesus do? He badgers him, right? Remember that text? Badgers him, coerces him, powers up on him, right? Just lets him walk away. And that ought to scare the wooey out of us. If there's, and again, I mean that just as an analogy, you shouldn't be scared of God. But if you ever were gonna be scared of God, it ought to get our attention that he pretty much lets us have our way until we come to the point of desiring his story and him. It's always invitational. Every day, God's inviting us to respond to him with freshness, to respond to him even in the midst of, you know, thinking again of that Genesis story, that even in the midst of God's grief over the destruction of his creation, even in his pain and regret, God sees a Noah as the bearer of an alternative possibility of the seed of a new story. And if you're wondering where your Lenten fasting should go, I would suggest that's where we wanna be headed, that we're creating space in our life 
so that we, like Noah, can be the bearer of an alternative possibility in this world, that people can see in us someone who's living a different story, that as we practice Christ-likeness, that we too, in every day and in every decision, and of course I mean that idealistically, every day, every decision, we too can be the bearer of this alternative possibility. So as we come to our first week here, our first Sunday of Lent and this moment of Lenten quiet, maybe you could hold yourself in quiet with uh, this question. This Lent, not last one, not the one coming, but this Lent, what might you need to add or subtract from your life to make your life God's alternative to the ongoing ruin of the world? What might you need to add or subtract from your life to make it God's alternative to the ongoing ruin of the world.